You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to the Women in Archaeology Podcast, Episode 6. I'm your host, Sarah, with our panel today consisting of Kirsten Lopez, Kristen Bastis, and Emily Long. Today, we're continuing the conversation started in Episode 4 on the results of a survey for field archaeologists and cultural resource managers put out by Charles J. Paleska. We discuss a variety of topics generated by the report itself, discussing everything from representation of women in the field, what constitutes a professional archaeologist, how to enforce ethics in the field of archaeology, and higher education versus employability in the field. We rejoined the conversation talking about the need for professional organization and certification in the field of archaeology. Let's join the conversation already in progress. And we are back and we are still talking about who's a professional and who isn't a professional and should we have a professional organization or not, which again, I think this is another great topic for another show, but let's chew on it for about 20 more minutes. I was a little bit curious because you guys mentioned that nurses need to have a specific um, licensure to become an RN and so on and so forth. So I looked it up and become a registered nurse. You do have to obtain a specific state license in order to have something with more teeth. I wonder then, would every state need to have some kind of licensure in order to become an archaeologist with the letters after our name in order to have some kind of organization backing every archaeologist? So here's, because I wanted to jump in before we went to break, but I am not a fan of the RPA. And it's not because I think anybody in there is like a jerk or anything. I just am not a fan of the concept of the RPA. Mainly because it's like one more way you can exclude people from the field. And I don't mm. like how where we seem to be as a group working towards a very elitist exclusionary field that is pushing out a lot of people who have experience and is also making it more difficult for people to break in. I understand the flip side of that is, is we're like, shooting archaeologists out the door like rabbits at this point i understand that concept but a lot of those people drop out because they don't want to work in the field uh it's not what they thought it was they get a job offer somewhere else personal reasons all that kind of stuff so you lose i would say easily half of the new graduates every year oh yeah so i think making it harder for the people who stay in the field to stay in the field is mm-hmm. counterproductive and I, I just think it's very exclusionary and elitist. I, I don't know that the RPA is the right vehicle, but you know, since I started doing field work uh, in the early 90s, I've run into many people working in the field who I wish just weren't there. Right. They weren't very good. They weren't very detail oriented. They weren't taking good notes. They were trying to get out of digging as many holes as they could instead of really doing the survey that they were, you know, following the methodology that we were supposed to follow. And I just would have loved some kind of certification. Whether, you know, what form that takes, I don't know. I think that um, the like the nurse example, nurses have to know a lot of information about drug doses and different things like that that are a lot easier to tease out on a written test than archaeology is because it's so practice 
yeah. based and every site is different. So I don't know that a written test is the way to go, but I would have loved some kind of certification to, to one, so that, em, so that employers know that if you have this, you're a good worker and a good archaeologist and they could depend on you to do the job that they're expecting of you. Your, your fellow field techs know it. I don't agree that, you know, only people with master's degrees should get any kind of credential. Well, on that, that same note, too, I mean, these other professionals, uh, professions that we are comparing ourselves with, say, anything from nursing to real estate agents, lawyers, anything like that. They have that licensure requirement, but they also have, with the exclusion of real estate, you know, some sort of, you know, either a much higher income. <laughs> yeah. Such as lawyers. An income that allows you to pay for it. Yes. Or right. a requirement like nurses. Um, and this is also, you know, nursing wages tend to be fairly high in comparison to some compare, you know, other non-BA or BA level stuff that's out there. And this may vary regionally, but I mean, at least in the Northwest and on the West Coast, it's um, in, you know, some states it is unionized and required to be unionized in, in even smaller cases. But, um, you know, those unions, while they can be a pain in the ass, <laughs> they can be very beneficial for things like that because we ha they have the standard, they have the standards and they have to pay in order to <laughs> upkeep those standards. Right. But you can't require, and this is kind of where it's people get into this catch-22 of, we want the standards, but we don't want to pay for it, or we can't pay for it. But then part of that gets into negotiations. If you have standards, then you're not falling into this constant underbidding on jobs so that you have to pay also as little as possible. So it's okay. this constant cycle Perfect. of a lot of at least early CRM companies. It's improving somewhat, I think, but don't have business experience. They haven't run a business before. They don't really know how business works and they don't understand the bidding process, um, which I think ours probably most closely aligns with like construction and contractors in that process. So you have people who are scientists trying to run a company and some are doing better than others, granted, but there's this constant outbidding each other for a lower bid. And when you're doing that, you're cutting corners somewhere, whether it's your employees' wages, the quality and thoroughness of the work that you're doing, curation is somewhere else that I see corners cut sometimes. And, you know, it's just kind of that's where you start really getting into those. This is kind of sketchy. Ethics stuff should be kicking in here if we had it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's it's hard to tell everyone, okay, we need to do this. And then people bring up all these other things. It's kind of like, well, they're tied together. <laughs> we kind of have to do it all at once. Yeah. No, yeah. You're, you're right. Wages okay. definitely do have to go up. I mean, oh, yeah. and then also the other issue too is this, the contract work, project to project stuff. I, I find myself feeling very fortunate that I did not have to do a whole lot of that. Yeah. While I was a field tech, there was this sort of, strange time where there were several companies that I worked for that hired me full-time permanent 
I had a 401k and I worked in the winter, nice. you know, all through the winter and, uh, you know, got paid, you know, not super great, but, you know, decently. And I, I am hearing, you know, on Facebook and other social media about field techs that are, there is almost virtually no possibility of getting a full-time job when you're a field tech. Yeah, no one hires field techs permanently anymore. No. Yeah, that's so... See, that's I'm so hearing cool. that, though, with crew so chiefs bad. as well. It is also true with crew chiefs, but it is... Yeah. Le- Once you get to the crew chief level, companies are more likely to rehire you. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like being full-time hired because you're just constantly getting rehired to do another project. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Even though I see companies all the time, they're like, this is a as needed position with possibility of full-time hire. And I'm like, yeah, sorry. You see that in government agencies too. It's really a shame. Um, just yeah. the seasonal work, even just um, temporary positions, uh, step positions you just do not see it anymore and it's a real shame especially for like the gs5 gs7 um techs and um archaeological uh, or just archaeologist um positions you just do not see even temp or term positions anymore it's really a shame i just for a lot of people in that like 20s back bracket going to the early 30s it's really hard to find that full-time work. And I mean, it makes perfect sense that you see such a drop in older archaeologists if there just aren't permanent jobs. So if, if that survey yeah. information is reflecting the, the true situation. Well, CRM is so hard on people physically. I mean, you oh, are, it's, it, it is a lot like construction in that you are physically doing labor for up to 10 hours a day, sometimes more if your company's on a time crunch and, you know, you yeah. can be digging holes for 11, 12 hours a day. So it it wears you down. Yes. So, yeah, and if you don't have a permanent position that pays you through the winter, which would be a dream job for so many people, you know, in the winter, now you go in and you deal with the artifacts. That would be freaking amazing. Mm-hmm. But those jobs just don't exist. Or if they do, they hire a lab person and that lab person, that's all they do. And so that person's got a job. That's great. But the 20 other people that are out there digging the holes to produce work for the lab person, they don't have guaranteed work. Right. And so you see a lot of people who are getting into their retirement years. You don't get a retirement unless you work for a company for X number of years. Yeah. Or start your own and that's yeah so earlier um chelsea mentioned uh something that she that happened with her when she went through her degree abroad and i really think was something that they would implement in the u.s more commonly i don't know if anyone has this you guys can reflect on this but with the meet other people who graduated from the program and see what they're doing now yeah um being able to be like Hey, you know, how did you transfer these skills to something else? If you decide that you don't want to do archaeology, you mentioned earlier, like the honesty with students. CRM was mentioned briefly in my intro class. Right. I did in my senior year take a CRM graduate level course, 
and was both blown away, intrigued, and fascinated. <laughs> and that's why I, I have fallen into CRM. I, I think it's ethically important to do, and that's where I struggle with the ethical complications that we keep running into in the business. And some of that has to do with the nature of it and other stuff that we've mentioned. But to give students, and maybe, I don't know, universities are scared to do it because they think they'll drop out and leave or go to another program. Be honest and be like, hey, this is what's going on. Well, especially if there aren't the jobs, but like, what is the actual transferability of this skill set? There's got to be something, you know, yeah, like actually, actually, um, <laughs> there was just there was just a Harvard professor that spoke at West Point about anthropology degrees and I think that we need a lot more people with anthropology degrees that don't actually want to do anthropology and archaeology, um, but want to go into other fields because the education and the, the mindset that develops as the results of an anthropology education is very beneficial to every other field that exists. But I think universities do need to do a better job at telling their students or letting their students know that that you can do these other things. This is the way you sell yourself to a business that's looking to hire, you know, another business major, you know, that you would be a better bet because you have you have an anthropology degree and you know about different cultures and you know about systems and you can see issues of how things are interrelated, which would be beneficial to the company. And that's where I think some of our problems can be alleviated is if we, if we instruct the business community, the, the benefits about the benefits of people who have anthropology degrees. It's a two way street. We need to educate other fields as to why an anthropology degree isn't a throwaway degree. And we need to be a whole lot more honest with our students when they're training. Yeah, a lot of these people, when you get in there and you're frank and honest with them, they're going to change to another degree. That's not a bad thing. It's, you know, it'll lower the number of people graduating out of the field, which will in general raise demand. But at the same time, if you're a student and you're like, you know what, I'm still going to stick this out. But I don't want to do archaeology and I don't want to go study. I don't want to go live in another country for a year. What else can I do with this degree? I think we're, we should tell people you can go into business. You can be an amazing HR person. You can help with social science research. You can help with research in general. You could go be a life coach and be an amazing life coach because you've been trained to think differently and interact with people at a different level then even an MBA is going to be trained to do. Yeah. You know, but we don't do that. No, that's true. And one of the reasons I think that that is true is because the people who are the professors just stayed in academia in that discipline. And there's no, there's no experience there of going outside the field. Yeah. There's very little appreciation for that cross compatibility and the ability to transfer skills and how to do that. And 
sort of, you know, giving students their tools. And I guess maybe, you know, some of this should be put on the career department of each university as well. But just, you know, how to approach that for students. And I mean, classes like, say, like you were saying earlier, the HR using, you know, anthropology and in human resources or how to talk to business people because <laughs> it's a different mindset. And I did a lot of business before I, you know, worked in anthropology. So I have that knowledge that, you know, the business mindset is very different. It's interesting and not always bad, but definitely I think a lot of people who have done sales or business all of their lives have a really hard time conceiving of the anthropological mindset or anything in that vein of there are other ways to think and not so much outside of mine. I mean, not everyone in business is that egocentric, but I mean, there is a difficulty to, to concept that cultural difference unless they themselves are cross-cultural and have that um, culture shock experience that they have personally experienced. And then even then it's kind of hard to, to have people relate and understand how it is beneficial. So it's definitely a conversation that I think I talked to cultural anthropology graduates that have been like, you know, they told me that I could transfer this skill everywhere, but that's BS because I haven't been able to get a job anywhere. Right. And some of that has to do with, like you're saying, Kristen, the ability to sell yourself. I mean, that's any business person. It doesn't matter what your background is. You can sell yourself. You can sell other things. <laughs> and that's what they're looking for, whether it's, you know, the value of that company in the HR to anywhere from you know, being able to market to other cultures. Oddly enough, I just saw a movie that had a little bit of that in it, and that was... Um, the best marigold hotel i want to say i could be saying that title wrong yes and the gal in her older years you know she's in another culture that markets to her home country so she is able to get a job showing them those cultural differences those little things like you know, how empathy works in that country or how, you know, you dunk. I think the example she had was dunking a cookie in your tea uh, or a biscuits rather because um, she was from England. So those little things and we know and it seems so obvious to us as anthropologists that that would be a difference that you would look for or know that is there. But most people haven't a clue. <laughs> right. Okay, well, let's go to break real quick. And when we come back, I, I know we've been wanting to talk about some ethics, some of the things he discovered here with the ethics. So. Telling a different story to the traditional lines of archaeology, the Anarchaeologist podcast seeks the stories and ideas that are often overlooked or not considered real archaeology. Video games, anarchism, and archaeology in the middle of hostile areas. Host Tristan doesn't search under the rocks. He destroys them. Available on iTunes every fortnight. And we're back. And go ahead, Kristen. You wanted to wrap something up. Yeah, I just wanted to mention about, um, you know, a lot of comments I've heard is that universities are putting too many um, masters and PhD archaeologists out there. And 
I wonder about that. Um, that that could be true for the demand, you know, in the job market for those degrees. But also, I wonder, does that happen in every field? Like, are there too many astrophysicist PhDs who can't get jobs? You know, are there too many math PhDs who end up teaching high school math? Yeah, I just kind of wonder about other disciplines and their struggles, their PhD, their master's students' struggles finding a job in their field. And if that is across the board just something that universities do because their job is to educate people and they'll educate them in whatever discipline they want, but they don't have, you know, they don't have a responsibility to, to, or they don't even advertise that they have career placement numbers that are stellar in anything, really. You know, there's a lot more business opportunities. So maybe the business people get absorbed. But, you know, when I was in school, there were a lot of communications majors And I'm like, I don't know that there's that many jobs for that many people with those skills. And so I just kind of wonder about that. And and I guess we'd have to talk to maybe um, deans of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences or presidents of universities to see if they're getting complaints across the board or if anthropology and archaeology are suffering in particular. Well, I do think it's probably across the board, um, outside of tech, like technological field, computers and whatnot. From just from hearing from my friends, like they're biologists and journalists and lawyers just all over the place that no matter what field you're in outside of the tech field, it is incredibly hard to find something to that you particularly studied for. Like, for example, example, my brother is a medievalist professor. You don't need that many medievalists at a university. <laughs> and so I think in the liberal arts in particular, it is difficult to find positions. So yeah, I think across the board, for the most part, it's, it's hard, especially in this economy and just hearing people complain, you know, at the bar and friends chatting away. It, it sounds like it's a, a tricky situation no matter what field you went into. I would like to add in just real quick. I agree with Emily on the likelihood that it's pretty widespread. I mean, between the when the economy did tank in eight and nine, oh eight, oh nine, you had a huge influx, and in some cases, you had enrollment rates at universities increase drastically, and so universities became big business. I mean, there. I've seen universities open up in Portland alone in the last few years when there should only be like a handful. There's several, many more than there I should think should be. And you have so you have this influx of educated people that want jobs in their field. And, you know, this continual devaluing of people without college degrees. And those are still jobs that need to be done. It doesn't matter who it's filled by, but those numbers, those that's they still need to be done. And that disappreciation or unappreciation for those, or lack of appreciation is probably a better phrase, for those regular jobs and the requirement of bachelor's degrees for things like sales positions is silliness. And, you know, you have a very broad stroke inflation degrees, as well as just a 
general lack of, you know, distribution, proper distribution of degrees to job availability. I, I like, I'm of two minds on this. I'm like, yeah, there's, I don't think everybody should go to college. And it's not because I think some people are more, uh, I don't think people are more deserve certain people are more deserving of a college degree than others. I think a lot of people end up going to college due to like pressure, societal pressure, family pressure, and they don't thrive. They don't want to be there. They end up making bad decisions while they're there because they don't want to be there. And it's just like, why don't we have something better for these people? But at the same time, I admire people who want to pursue education for education's sake. And I think if we're just more honest with people about what they're going to get out of their degree, I think yeah. you'll have a lot of people who will be like, you know, the people who don't want to be there and who just got pressured into it are going to be like, well, okay, I don't need to be here. I can go do a job doing, I don't know, something with my hands. There are people who want to be electricians. I mean, I know that sounds stunning to some people, but there are people who like doing yeah. manual labor. Let them do it. Why don't we subsidize their education like we do kids in college? Well, yeah. actually, now the trades, don't, they do, they actually do get a little bit of subsidy because a lot of times part of their technical education is to do an apprenticeship, um, which they get paid for and helps pay for their schooling. And then they make, I mean, our scale like ends at 30, it's $30 and up an hour. Electricians and plumbers start there once right. they become masters of their trade. Right. And which doesn't take very long. Once you get licensed for electrician or plumbing, that's where you start. Yeah. <laughs> and but yet we still as a society overvalue we as a society we overvalue college education and we undervalue trade education exactly and, and we need to stop doing that and if we did that you know that would solve a lot of problems and i'm sure it's not just a magical switch don't get me wrong but it would solve a lot of problems with people graduating and not being able to get field uh, jobs in their fields because there wouldn't be as many people graduating in that field. Okay, so I know Chelsea was the one that wanted to talk about ethics. I think Chelsea was the one who wanted to talk about the ethics. Yeah, so back to the report that we were talking about originally. There's a section in here where he has other issues that participants brought up. And integrity and ethics is like the number one topic followed by safety and then by pay. Um, and we've kind of talked pay to death. We haven't really talked about safety, but integrity and ethics is kind of an interesting one. And he has it kind of outlined as concerns about companies not having integrity and ethics when it comes to the resource, crew, pay, etc., as well as concerns about crew members and team leaders showing a lack of integrity when it comes to resources and poor work ethics. And I know we've all talked about getting stuck with the person who doesn't want to do the work yeah kind of situation yeah. but i think the bigger i think the bigger picture here is companies who cut corners as we mentioned earlier a lot of company i mean i we've all worked for the company where they tell you don't find anything today yeah. you know it's it's like well you know statistically you know, probably not we're not going to find anything but really you shouldn't be telling us that there our job is to make sure there's nothing here not to blindly dig holes in a line. The other thing about the ethics and integrity too is tribal consultation and the effort that's put into that, the understanding of a cultural landscape. Like it's section 106 is more than just avoiding the site in the ground. Yeah. It's talking about the whole landscape. And I think a lot of that falls by the wayside 
There's companies now that the engineering companies that break their pipelines into half mile segments so they can avoid NEPA altogether. And they, and they don't consider that um, there's cumulative effects with their, all their little individual projects. Oh, they and know there are. They just don't just, care. Yeah, I mean, they, right. But they're avoiding, you know, they're actively avoiding NEPA by, by doing that. And I, so that's a, a large scale integrity ethics problem of the, the way higher ups at companies. See, and I think that's a national issue because we, that kind of stuff, when those projects get submitted, the person reviewing those projects should be like, um, no. You know, somebody up there should be like, no, I see what you're doing. I, I understand what you think you're trying to get away with. And no, you can't get away with that. Right. And there have been court cases over it, and the project proponents have won those cases. I believe that. That just comes from us not having enough money. <laughs> there's that too. There's too, yeah, I mean, there's. we've talked about this in a prior podcast where the laws that are made for archaeology just don't have enough teeth. Yeah. And some of that, I mean, so I agree, Kristen, that the, a lot of the, the TCP stuff is not paid attention to enough. And a lot of that comes from training or lack thereof, you know, as we mentioned before, everything that we do in CRM, 90% of it about, um, is not taught in schools. And I think that should be, considering most of us end up working in CRM, that should be a requirement for an anthropology degree. Yep. Whether it's archaeology or cultural anthropology, there are cultural anthropologists that work, if not for CRM companies, then oftentimes for the agencies and states and tribes that integrate, you know, that have everything to do with 106 and other uh, CRM-related laws. So things like recognizing or knowing what a TCP is, knowing the parts to 106. Most, almost all anthropology graduates don't know what it is or what's in it. And, you know, that's stuff that you work or that you learn on the job. And if you're the person that's supposed to be identifying a cultural landscape and don't know what it is or even that it should be identified, there's a problem. So that's kind of circles back to, in my mind, the idea of licensure and having an idea of what it is that we're supposed to be doing, even at the tech level. You know, I've heard arguments of if your PI knows what you're doing, then that's enough. And I'm like, no. <laughs> Techs need to understand what's going on in the field. And that's a complaint that I have had with field directors. And I don't know if this is an integrity. Well, it's definitely an integrity thing. I don't know if it's ethics. Though. And a communication issue, too. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Share your maps. Share the data that you're allowed to share. There's no reason why everybody can't look at the map and know where they're going. I mean, yeah. I've, I've had crew chiefs that are like, don't worry about it. Just go where I tell you to go. And it's like, what if I get lost? I have no markers now. All I have is a bearing. What if my compass gets off? People don't seem to realize how badly your compass can get screwed up, screwed up by power lines and buried utilities. You know, yeah. you can be way off and not realize it because the power lines or the pipelines grabbed hold of your compass and now you're off on your own, you know, and you're not, your crew chief's not sharing that information with you. You don't know what you're looking for. You don't know any kind of prior excavation or not uh, surveys that may have been done out in an area that would be helpful to know about. 
you know, that kind of crap. There's no reason not to tell your crew about that. And yet lots of crew chiefs will not do it. Yeah, and that's, that's really unfortunate. I, when I became a crew chief, I knew that I wasn't going to stay a crew chief forever and that I wanted someone following me so that when I was running the project, I had decent crew chiefs behind me yep. that could actually do the job. I, some cases, I made everyone on my crew do site sketches. I, and sometimes I had to make them. Most of the time they volunteered, but I was like, I am not going to move up the ladder and leave a vacuum of ill-trained people behind me that then I have to supervise. Right. It's just shooting yourself in the foot. But so many of them will yeah. sit on that. And, you know, and I don't know if that's the whole, it's just they feel like if they give up that little little tiny piece of power like if i let someone else do the site sketch then i've lost that piece of power and it's just like dude it's not that important it's all right relax right and i think the benefit to you in the long run to anyone in the long run as a crew chief who wants to move up you know then you move up to you know project manager or pi or whatever you call it and then you have these crappy people that you didn't train behind you that now you have to get up to speed to actually be crew chief. I think within all of that too, is not only the, the training side of it, is that making sure that there's a level of care for the crew, that whomever is being brought up then to become a crew chief, a supervisor, whatever, doesn't only focus on the paperwork side, the mapping side, that they make sure there is still that level of care for the crew their safety, um, not only just the knowledge that they have to have to perform their work. Right. Crew safety. Yeah. I, I've worked for, I, I have had several crew chiefs that are just amazing at the whole making sure that their crew is safe. Because oh, me if, you too. if you don't have a crew, you're not doing anything. Yeah. You know, and on the days that we've had to work and it was so, so hot and you're doing nothing but ag fields. So there's no shade anywhere. We've had, I've had guys who are like, we're only going to work for this amount of time. Then we're all going to take a break. And I want to see each and every one of you taking at least a sip of water, you know, and then after we've done a really long field, taking us someplace cool where we can all kind of deheat and that kind of stuff. Same thing in the winter. Yeah, you know, there are um, there are OSHA regulations about heat and how long you can work at when the temperature is a certain amount and the humidity is a certain amount, how long you can be out in it. But there is no corresponding cold regulations. Yeah. Um, Canada, I thought there was something that was like 10 degrees or uh, something like that. Yeah, it, get, it has to be really cold. It doesn't take into consideration people working, doing what we do out in the field uh, with minimal protection. That's been the argument against the uh, the cold regulations. So, yeah, the, the cold regulations aren't as good as the heat regulations. And the heat ones are skewed as well because it's considering people in heavy levels of safety gear, unlike yeah. us. Who are, you know, at most you're wearing a helmet and a reflector vest. Yeah, no, there's um, the OSHA regulations cover construction workers that are, you know, hard hat, steel toed boots kind of thing. Yeah. But you would be surprised how many field chiefs don't, don't, aren't even aware that there are those regulations. I worked for companies that didn't even realize those regulations existed. 
Yeah, that was something I was going to mention. I'm going to keep throwing something in the pot for licensure again every time we go. (laughs) This is definitely a big, big, big one because I have had the experience. I, the same site, different companies and different adherence to OSHA regulations. And Uh it was at that point when I realized that there was something fishy going on. And when I started really looking into how much do my crew chiefs know? How much training have they had? Is there someone, are we like way out in the middle of nowhere? And who, if anyone, is CPR or wilderness first aid trained? Um, I think that should be a requirement if you're more than three hours away from a hospital, which, you know, I've been pretty remote and it's kind of like, well, we have this 10 year old uh, first aid box in the truck. Which <laughs> And I might be able to carry you over the next couple canyons, but try not to do anything that you'll get eaten by a cougar if I go get that for you in the meantime. So, you know. My, my favorite story for that is we were working out in an area that was known for having poisonous snakes. And we were easily two to three miles from the vehicle. And I was like, so what happens if somebody does get bit? I'm like, do we? And you were supposed to be issued antivenom. And the guy was like, well, probably we'll just try to put a tourniquet on you and carry you back to the vehicle and then drive you to the nearest hospital. Because even if we call an emergency vehicle, it still is probably going to take them about an hour to get here anyway. And I was like, well, what about antivenom? And he's like, eh, we don't actually have any. And your chances of dying from the antivenom are pretty high anyway. It's kind of like 50-50 chance. And I'm like, okay, good to know. Don't get hit by snakes because you're going to die. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of people just don't think about that bad things are going to happen. Yeah, you know, it's not, it's and it's this, it's this thing about you know everyone has car insurance and they pay for it every month. They're you know once they turn sixteen and get a license, (laughs) and you hardly ever use it, but you pay for it without question. But Mm -hmm. when you think of safety things at work, people are like, oh, that's not going to happen. Oh, that's not going to happen. Well, yeah, probably not. 99.9% of the time, it's not going to happen. But if you're not prepared for it when it does happen, it's going to be a huge mess. Yeah. Let's take a break real quick. And then when we come back, we will wrap up this conversation that we've been having because it's been really good. Jenny McNiven, host and diva of The Struggling Archaeologist's Guide to Getting Dirty, brings a witty, personal, and often musical view of archaeology. From personal experiences to just telling you about something she really loves, you'll always be informed and entertained. Listen to The Struggling Archaeologist's Guide to Getting Dirty on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash struggle art. Let's get back to the show. And we are back, and let's uh, let's finish up our, our talk about ethics by talking about corner cutting. And I, I think the best way to tackle this is to say what we maybe have perceived as corner cutting. Because um, unless you were, like, there for the planning, you don't really know if there was corner cutting. But there's always the... There's always things that you're, like... Like using Google Street Maps instead of actual ArcGIS maps, or yeah, <laughs> um, and then not understanding why everything's off, um, or things like um, 
I think my favorite one is not trying, not providing water for the crew because you didn't want to either A, buy bottled water or B, get a giant cooler and put it in the back of the vehicle. I've actually rarely had companies provide water for everybody. Oh, see, now they're uh, supposed to, actually. And see, yeah. I've been so incredibly spoiled then. Because, like, all the stuff <laughs> you guys are talking about, I'm like, no, like, and I'm not even trying to get brownie points or anything. Like, seriously, like, I've been provided coolers of water. If we run out of water, someone will run into town, even if it's, like, a two-hour driveway, and get us water. Um, we do safety meetings before every project. We make sure – if we're running out of time, we we try to, like – bust out as much as we can within that amount of time and work overtime if we have to. You know, it's like, I don't know. I've been so spoiled. However, I have definitely heard Do you, do you get paid rumors. for the overtime? Yeah, definitely. That must be nice. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, That's I what I mean. I am like, so spoiled. But I've <laughs> definitely heard rumors. I mean, as far the rumor mill in archaeology is impressive. Where, I mean, we've had to clean up other companies work because of corner cutting and yeah. it coming out later on that major issues have happened and that you Those know ginormous worst. archaeological sites were passed on by and that's only possible if you were running on the survey type of yeah. thing and i mean we all hear about that i think it, it's it's hard not to hear the rumors about certain companies and how they treat their workers like to horrible hotels and then they double up people within that horrible hotel or um, per diem is not very good or so on and so forth. One of the things I'd like to just say about per diem, um, because it was a discussion in another podcast, but just really to get the information out there is that the Fair Labor Standards Act does not require companies to pay any sort of per diem. It is not a legal requirement. It is, if a company does it, they do it because it's the right thing to do. And they, even if they get it from a federal agency and they put it in their budget and they say, I'm going to give my crew $90 of per diem a day, they can give you 50 and not be in trouble. See, and that's something that needs to be standardized. Cause no, definitely. That, yeah. That just so, you know, that's one thing that people talk about as corner cutting is, you know, the companies either skim off some per diem or they keep it in a, an account that earns interest and then they pay it out late or, you know, whatever the situation is. But, you know, in terms of the legal requirements, it's pretty shocking. And and I only learned that because when I was on a field crew, there was a rumor that the company was skimming part of the per diem. And I asked my brother, who was a CPA, and he was like, they don't have to give you anything. See, that may not be a legal requirement, but it is definitely a corner-cutting thing. I mean, sure, sure. yeah, you don't have to pay me per diem, but I'm probably not going to apply for your job if you don't. And right. ethically, and I, they I just should pay. To put, that, put that out there because there's a lot of misconception that this is an illegal act. Yeah, I, you know, I the legality of it aside, it's... As Emily said, it's definitely an ethical thing. You, you you definitely should be paying people enough to eat. And if you can't put together, uh, this is just sounds harsh, but I would think as a business owner, you sh you should be able to figure out how to put a budget together where you can not only pay your people fairly, but also provide them room and board. Especially when you're doing a project. Like I get when people are doing a project and it's like, 
two minutes away from their office and there's plenty of people locally to hire. Yeah, yeah you don't need to pay per diem if I'm going to go home and sleep in my own bed. I don't need per diem. I will take it if you're going to offer it, but I don't need it. <laughs> if I'm driving nine to 12 hours from the state that I live in to go work in the state that we're working in, you better damn well at least be giving me a room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've almost <laughs> always, with rare exception, I've almost always gotten like single rooms. Like there's, I've never shared a room for a CRM company. It's always been me, myself and I often in a two bedroom hotel, of course, because <laughs> there's rarely singles right. available. And so it's, it's the quality of rooms, of course, is quite broad. There are some I don't want to touch the walls in the bathroom um, and others that I feel like I have an apartment I could squish in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like best. <laughs> yes. However, I would also agree with Emily on the ethical standpoint, partly because they the hourly isn't enough. Yeah. Like it's just not enough pay for, you know, not only just living, but I don't know if like, I, I would hope and I, I, I'm pretty sure I know that most CRM folks know that we're all paying student loans as well. <laughs> so, you know, pile that on top for cost of living and it shrinks that down even more. So oh, yeah, and God forbid you own property or have a payment on your car or whatever exactly. else. And what I, 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 that's a, I think a big problem with a lot of companies. They are, I think, playing into the fact that there are so many archaeologists that desperately need yeah. jobs. So no matter what, no matter even if you are getting put in these horrible hotels or if you're not getting per diem, people are still going to take the job. And if you're lucky and you're able to get with a company that won't do that, that's awesome. However, I think there are enough desperate archaeologists that they will take whatever they can get. And I think that goes all the way back to needing some kind of oversight, whether something like the RPA, something like a union, that the companies also have to be um, yes. res- yeah. uh, accountable to. Yeah, we, we do need something that the companies, I would like to see that done before we start holding the workers accountable. Because I've never heard of a company having a hard time hiring archaeologists. But I have met archaeologists that have a hard time finding work. Because whatever the reason, it's not... I don't feel like that should be the way it is. But there are more archaeologists out there. And there are more every year than there are available jobs. And that's... Having the RPA or something like the RPA isn't going to fix that. It's not going to create jobs. It's just going to make it harder for certain people to get work. Whereas Mm -hmm. if we require the companies to follow, to be regulated in certain ways, and there's been talk about that. Well, yeah, and like enforce it. That's the other end of that, enforcing that. I've worked for companies that follow OSHA to the letter to the point where it is freaking annoying as hell, but at least they're following OSHA. And I have yeah. worked for companies that are like, eh, we're going to work <laughs> you for 12 hours on a 110 degree day, work, walking you through swamp, and we're not going to provide you with water because you should bring your own, you should know by now to bring your own water. Well, yeah, I brought enough water for 10 hours. The two hours that you're surprising me with now that we're out here, I don't have water for. 
Yeah. You know? And oh, by the way, we're not going to pay you for the two hours we just made you work because we're going to do some kind of magical math back in the office that'll somehow make your hours come out. Man, I've had crew chiefs bring us out ice cream and popsicles on hot days. I, I have complain. had that. And that's awesome. <laughs> I love those people very, very much. Yes, um, that's pretty awesome. But I've had others that are like, if you feel lightheaded, just sit next to a tree and we might come back and get you on our way out. Oh, oh like, that's, yeah. And they so should I be held accountable. Or like, if not that person, the company should be held accountable for having a person in that position of power treating a crew in that way right but then you run into the situation where you have an issue with somebody especially someone of power and you complain about it even if you're just kind of like hey you know i don't know if this is an issue but it doesn't matter how you bring it up it looks bad on you Mm -hmm. and since you are easily replaceable they'll just replace you and that's the problem with the environment. It's a toxic environment when it comes to these situations. If you yeah. have a problem, the company doesn't think, oh, if I fix the problem, maybe everything will be better. They just go, we'll just get rid of the people who are the problem and just hire new people. And so the problem never gets addressed. Yeah. And that's where I think part of this whole licensure discussion that we keep poking at and regulation should come to some sort of, and I have no idea how to address protections for field techs because we're not hireable permanently. So there's no, you know, nothing like that. And we're all moving around. Um, like migrant workers with degrees. That's exactly (laughs) what we are. And that's no joke. That's exactly what we are. And if anybody's listening to this and thinking about a field in archaeology and are suddenly <laughs> like, oh, I'm out, we have done our jobs. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry, Sorry. Kirsten. <laughs> sorry, yeah. Kirsten. Go ahead and finish. <laughs> That's exactly it. And, you know, there's the, you know, migrant workers unions. There are protections for people who do, you know, agricultural work on a seasonal basis and move from city to city, town to town, state to state. But there isn't anything for us. And that's where there isn't even a known count of people who do this, working field archaeologists, the technician, whether we have masters or not, there is no number and there is no known. It is assumed it's 80 to 90 percent of all graduating archaeologists go on to work in CRM. But as you noted before, it's most of us leave (laughs) because we're like, screw this. I need something more solid because we all have lives. Yeah. Or try to start lives or have lives at all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you really, I mean, yeah, you could do a lot of really good landscaping. Some people I know have gotten good jobs with uh, construction firms. Um, a lot of people do things like truck driving. And I, I know friends who have gone back to school for completely different degrees, but yeah, transferring, getting. Okay. So this is the other problem with archaeology. It's kind of like a hostage situation. <laughs> it really is, though. Once you've spent so much time learning how to do your job and do it well, you're good at it. You're not going to make shit for money and you're not going to get a full-time job. So good luck taking those skills and transferring them to somebody, something else. Because the the minute a future employer looks at your CV and they see that you've got all of these jobs that are two weeks, two months, maybe you've got one on there from nine months. They're like, what the hell's wrong with you? Why can't you (laughs) hold a job? And you're like, no, you don't understand. I I did the same job for 11 years, but I worked for all these different companies. And they're just like, I don't understand. 
That doesn't yeah. make any sense to me. And all it says to them is you're a bad worker. Yeah. You know what we should do? We should open a temp agency for field techs. Right. And master this <laughs> this craziness because between the po- problem of you have all these tiny little jobs and then trying to switch occupations, it's also if you're overwintering and you have not been able to find a winter job and you are trying to get unemployment they have that same look on their face yeah if you can't hold a job why should we give you unemployment but not only that but there isn't any way to really calculate for a job because they usually go back so many months or so yeah you usually have to have a job for six months before you can apply for unemployment exactly Mm -hmm. and you can't do that very easily like you said unless you get those lucky like long-term um pipeline jobs or something that are going you know, three to nine months. Pipeline jobs are magical, but I mean, let's face it, that's a that's a dying field too. Yes, yeah. yeah. The, those who are willing to fork out the dough to be able to do the archaeology that's necessary are those large projects that are highly profitable, which tend to be energy projects. Yep. And of course, as we know, those are by and large the ones that have the most money are oil or natural gas. Yep. If you're looking at, and not to say these don't exist because they do, but if you're looking at renewable energy projects, they're harder to come by. I know Lauren Davis at OSU, he recently got approved for a project that does involve, um, if I remember correctly, a wave generation energy project that was approved by the EPA for the West Coast. So that is a huge project that's going to be started, but there's a lot of preliminary work that goes into it. And that's not something that's going to see a lot of jobs because most archaeologists are not underwater archaeologists. And that's not something. (laughs) That's a good job if you are, hint, hint, anybody who's doing (laughs) underwater archaeology. And usually yeah. that's not considered like a really big field for jobs. So. Yeah, that, yeah. if you're yeah. a water archaeologist, you're in an even smaller field. Exactly. I mean, more power to you, but yeah. There, it's few, far, and in between. And a lot of those people end up getting pulled off into treasure hunting. From what I hear, this is hearsay on that point. But I don't know. I've only worked <laughs> with three of them, and they were all doing terrestrial phase one stuff, so... But I mean, yeah. they, they were all qualified to do water if they wanted to. I've known a couple as well that ended up back on land. But yeah, I've I think a bunch in the Southwest, which I always found kind of funny. It is, <laughs> well, I think Texas A&M has an underwater prog- program and they're kind of, they're not really Southwest, I guess, but they're kind of, I would think, I don't know if Arizona does or New Mexico. They probably do. At least one of those two. Let's go out <laughs> on an up note. What did we, what did we really... <laughs> <laughs> now that I've brought everyone down, what what did we really, really like about this report? That it even looked at everything, or at least this much. There's you know? a lot of data in here. But, I mean, what, what did we read off this report that we were like, hell yeah. That See, was... I just took tons of notes, and most of them were just like, yes, that is a major issue. Oh, goodness. The only thing... I really, but that was like, yay, was like, well, yay, I don't have those issues where I work. <laughs> Yay me! Well, there you well, go. Seeing, seeing the gender balance uh, overall of the respondents was nice. The, you know that there uh, that at least of the people that answered the survey, that there was a gender balance. Also, I think it's great that the survey even exists. 
I think it's yeah. awesome that Charlie did this, and I hope, I hope that it continues, um, continues and, you know, other organizations like the SAA really um, take a cue that archaeologists are interested in finding out the demographics of their profession and, and do a good job with it. I personally loved the keeping up with archaeology section, and I will tell you why. Because... The first two questions were, I read blog entries from progressive professional blogs such as Dig Tech. <laughs> Hi, Chris. Random Acts of Science. Hi, Chris. Uh, I, d- I have not looked up CRM Collective and Succinct Research. Hi, Bill. So I know those people. And then the very next one is, I listen to podcasts from the Archaeological Podcast Network, which if you don't know, Yay, all of us. Yeah, it's where <laughs> this show is being hosted, as, are my, as is my other show. Uh, and the CRM archaeological or CRM archaeology podcast itself. So and my podcast and and Emily's podcast. There are other podcasts on there. There's like, <laughs> like yeah, it's like wonderful. Fifteen of them now network. or something like that. Yeah, it is. It's a whole network. But I like <laughs> the fact that 31 percent of the respondents follow the quote unquote professional progressive professional blogs, and that 18 percent listen to podcasts. Considering the APN's been around. For I want to say almost two years now. I think that's pretty good numbers if you're surveying the entire field of archaeology. Well, and of course, this gives us a new resource too because let's see, I follow regional groups on social media. Facebook is pretty high, as through websites and online publications from places like SAA, AIA, and SHA. Those I think are, you know, some good outlets to to go and poke at as far as getting ours and the podcast network out there as well as I'm curious um, how far reaching this survey has gotten like how many other people are talking about it do you have people at um, the SHA taking a look at this um, because there's a lot of historical archaeologists that do CRM you have you know other dedicated professional archaeology groups that uh, you know is this something that's that's knocking on their, their door as well as ours and so you know the fact that he's so specific about how people keep up with it and those are some high numbers you know it, it would be neat to see how much attention that these issues are starting to poke at and getting people thinking about all of these issues. And I think it's a really cool awareness tool. Uh, Yeah, he he definitely went above and beyond whatever goal it was he set for himself here. And I know that this is getting massive circulation. I've shared it a couple times. Uh, I know it blew up on Twitter. Uh, Hopefully when this podcast gets aired, it'll get It'll breathe some new life into this as well. So, I mean, I think this thing has, I think it's got some legs. And, and it I think we'll be a call to action. It is an excellent call to action because it brings to light a lot of things that people have been talking about. Yeah. I mean, we're not organized anyway, but this might be a great way to start convincing archaeologists that, hey, maybe we should stop working against our own self-interests and organize as a group. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And represent ourselves and, and help each other. Because, I mean... While we talk about it being an overcrowded <laughs> profession, you know, it's one of those, you know, you tear everyone else down, you're not helping yourself either. It's- yeah, yeah, and I don't want people to take away that I'm trying to tear them down, even though it probably sounds that way. Um, it, is an, <laughs> it is an overcrowded field, and I'm not trying to convince people or tell people they shouldn't be in it. If you want to be in archaeology, I feel like you should know 
all of the facts about the field. It's an yeah. overcrowded field. If you still want to come in here, that's great. I'm all for it, and I will totally support you, but you, you need to be aware that you got a lot to go up against. Yeah. And that's where it starts at the university as far as letting people know yeah. what the reality is and, yeah. and how to manage that reality mm -hmm. the best. Yeah. Especially for those poor kids who don't have work experience at all, let alone. Right. Yep. <laughs> all right. 30 second wrap ups because we're about done. Anybody got a real, real quick final thought? I'm well, just... I, I heard this quote one time when someone, there was, they were interviewing an actor. It was like on a, like one of those daytime interview shows. And the actor said, if there's anything that you'd rather do, or if there's anything that you do like to do other than being an actor, do that. And I always thought about that in terms of archaeology. If there's anything else that would make you happy, go do that. But yeah. if this is the only thing that's going to make you happy, then go for it. Emily? Even though, like you were saying, we were a little bit doom and gloom there, there's a reason we're in this field. We can rant about it, but there's still a reason we're in it. And it's because we love our jobs at the end of the day. We still love what we do. We love the subject matter. We love the artifacts. And like all of you were saying, I mean, if this is what you want to do, do it because there are a lot of rewards despite a lot of the issues archaeology is great yeah i would third that thought and just kind of toss in the idea of you know whether it's personal satisfaction or any other reason you know for me a lot of it is also feeling like i'm contributing in some way and helping crm made to some people i've you know heard this thought of well this is kind of a selfish profession because i do what i want or what i like about it but to me, you know, helping preserve and bring awareness to the archaeology and to just people's past and heritage is such an important thing that as Americans we tend to undervalue is a worthy cause in and of itself. Well, ladies, those are excellent points. And I appreciate you guys hanging out and doing this very long podcast with us. That's going to get broken <laughs> up in two parts. Thank you to all of you, including Chelsea, who had to break early. I will talk to everyone at their next recording and thank you all for hanging out. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you very much. We hope you have enjoyed the show. Please be sure to subscribe and rate our show wherever you listen. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and probably whatever your favorite podcasting app is. Remember to like and share. If you have questions or comments, you can post them in the comments section for the show at the Women in Archaeology page on the Archaeology Podcasting Network site. Or email them to us at womeninarchaeologypodcast at gmail.com. This show is part of the Archaeology Podcasting Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. You can reach them at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Music for this show was Retro Future by Kevin McLeod, available at Incomptep and royalty-free music. Thanks for listening. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.